Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, the long-awaited and twice-delayed discussion of the land. And to be more specific, since we were not more specific in the advertisements running up to this one, the land of Israel. Uh, we are going into this knowing that this is a very controversial topic, and um, you know we're we're more of um, how shall we say it uh, doctrinally classically focused um, in our topics. We tend not to cultivate controversy because there is a whole world of social media out there. If that's what you need more of in your life, but. Um, there are several reasons why we thought we would take this one on. And the first is that uh, a while back earlier this year, I was um, recording another podcast with my friend John Drury for his lectionary podcast, Fresh Text, I've mentioned before. And I did Psalm 37 with him. And as I was preparing for it, for some reason, for the first time in my life, the line struck me from Psalm 37, the meek shall inherit the land. This startled me, first of all, because I realized that's where Jesus gets that in the Beatitudes from. Uh, as usual, um, there is so much of Jesus' teaching that is taken right out of what we call the Old Testament, um, obviously doing his thing with it, um, but not totally alien to it. But secondly, I realized, oh, the meek shall inherit the land, which um is a little tricky because in both Hebrew of the Old Testament and Greek of the New Testament, the same word covers for land and earth. In Hebrew, it's eretz, and in Greek, it's gay. But that means the distinction is one not of vocabulary, but of interpretation. So what if the whole point for the psalm or for Jesus was not inheriting the whole earth in some sort of grand universal vision, but it actually means inheriting the much disputed land of Israel? And at that point, I said to myself, I have absolutely no theology of the land of Israel for today. Um, I have some vague little bits and pieces of it based on uh, biblical reading, because obviously the land is a very big theological topic in the Bible, but I have no idea what to think about it today. And funnily enough, I never had until now. So I said to dad, uh, I know that you've thought about the land, uh, at least more biblically in theology because of your Joshua commentary, but what about today? So that is what we are very um, gingerly going to approach and try to uh, tackle today. Well, Sarah, thank you again for involving me in an impossibly difficult topic. <laughs> um, I think that, you know, the, the psalm verse that Jesus, of course, appropriates for the Beatitude, um, I think the first comment I'd like to make on that is that it is not the violent but the meek who will inherit the earth. And I think the Psalm 37 text sort of, if you follow my reading of the book of Joshua, which is a literary uh, deconstruction of the whole idea of uh, violent uh, conquest um, uh, of the land, um, there's already anticipated in a Hebrew scripture Old Testament itself um, a certain... Um, self-critique going on in Israel uh, regarding some of its um, understandings of the way um, the land is promised and given to the people. We'll get into that into detail, I'm sure, in the course of this. But, you know, in a way, I, I simply have to agree with you that um, I have not thought 
deeply or profoundly about this problem until much later in life. I mean, I've had opinions about the Israeli-Palestine conflict, but theologically, I have always been with uh, Article um, 17 of the Augsburg Confession. I just want to quote that. Likewise rejected are some Jewish teachings, which have also appeared in the present, that before the resurrection of the dead, saints and righteous people alone will possess a secular kingdom and will annihilate all the ungodly. Close quote. Right. So this is ordinarily referred to in theological literature as chiliasm, which is the Greek word for a thousand years, and it's a reference to the thousand-year reign that some people see in the book of Revelation promised uh, uh, to the righteous, particularly if you're a, a um, what is that, a now, I always get pre- and post-millennialists mixed up. That's how good I am at this kind of theology. Pre-millennialists are the left-behind series people. Post-millennialists are the social gospel people. Right. And so I think that most uh, theologies today that, that want to um, make a statement about possession of the land of Israel by righteous people would have to be classified as post-millennialists. Uh, they, they believe that um, somehow the land of the, the geographical territory of Israel will in fact uh, be um, um, by divine providence uh, bequeathed to the righteous. And if the Augsburg Confession is right, at the expense of annihilating the ungodly. Um, I think the Augsburg Confession was absolutely right to reject that kind of theology. Um, and in addition, Sarah, that, um, that we have to comment that this critique of, in Article 17 of the Augsburg Confession is directed against Christians um, who adopt what I would kind of call a naive chiliasm, a naive literalism regarding uh, the continuing validity of the promises of land to the ancient nomadic people Israel. Yeah, I have to say that those, that and um, just the, the, what I would, what you could characterize as an amillennialist stance of the Augsburg Confession has become important to me much later. I, that wasn't something that was much on my horizon when I was younger and taking my ordination vows or, or anything. But um, realizing now the uh, unbelievable dangers of uh, of that kind of, uh, especially premillennialist, but frankly also post-millennialist thinking because it so quickly devolves into the ends justify the means and as long as God's will is done it doesn't matter how how we we help God in getting it done so um yes yeah, right, the, exactly. the warning the the warning is very sound and well taken um but nevertheless I guess the the question I'd like to try to pick apart with you here is um is it enough to have a biblical theology of the land of Israel and then a uh, sane, sober, realistic, um, contemporary political stance on the 
you know, the secular nation state of Israel. Um, I'll just say, I think I've said on the podcast before, I think it has a right to exist as much as any nation state has a right to exist. And I think there's plenty to be disturbed about, especially in its treatment of Palestinians. And there are nations whose right to exist is not questioned, who do all sorts of terrible things to their citizens. So it shouldn't be... um, uh, unjustly distributed in either the criticism or or the praise, but uh, that those are really political and world peace, or at least a reduction of world violence oriented considerations. I really have not until now given much thought to what I would say theologically about the land of Israel right now or from now into God's future. Um, and Dad, I have to say there was a there's a reason I realized for this. Uh, this is a great example of be careful what you say in the presence of children. <laughs> but uh, I think I'll have you tell the story that uh, about one of your parishioners in Harlem when you were a young pastor, because I think that pretty much determined my thoughts on this topic until, you know, like last year, basically. Yeah. Um, the, the story goes like this. I was the assistant pastor on my first call uh, at... Um, Mount Zion Lutheran Church on 144th Street and Convent Avenue in Harlem, Manhattan, uh, when I was a graduate student at Union Seminary. And uh, somehow somebody contacted me and they had a multimedia, they didn't call it that in those days, but a fancy slideshow, I suppose, uh, of the Holy Land and wondered if they could have permission to come to the church after the service and and put on the show for the people and show them the land where Jesus walked and talked. And I thought this would be a great event, and I set it up and arranged it. And then, um, the you know, the people stayed, and they had a little potluck uh, luncheon, and we watched the show. And then it turned into a sales pitch for the most expensive trip to the Holy Land that my parishioners in Harlem in the late 1970s could hardly afford keeping body and soul together where they were, let alone spending a fortune to go and walk and where Jesus walked and so forth. And I was just humiliated by the event, and I quickly dismissed this guy this, and, and sent him on his way and I was embarrassed, and the people, you know, I apologized to the people. And as we were cleaning up, I went to the kitchen window with some dirty dishes, and this lovely old saint uh, looked at me and saw how downfallen I was and said, Pastor, don't be sad. I don't need to go where Jesus walked. Jesus walks with me every day. <laughs> And, I love that. Yeah, and I think, you know, when you have a Lutheran Christology, which emphasizes the real presence uh, of the uh, crucified and risen Lord um, in a multiform ways, centrally, of course, in the Lord's Supper, but thence from there out on that basis, uh, the, the real presence of the Lord Jesus in the lives of believers, uh, you really don't need to go back. You rather want with him to go forward. And I think that's kind of the spirituality 
that uh, has informed us. And I guess you heard that story as a little one and it stuck with you, huh? <laughs> uh, it did. It did. I mean, I, it, it, it's profound and serious. Um, and, you know, I, I we don't need to be um, competitive and in interfaith comparisons here, but this is really a way in which there is something um, different of, among the Abrahamic religions in that Christianity has never had a built-in um, pilgrimage or return rule as a uh, you know, endemic to its own spirituality. Whereas, of course, for Jews, you know, the, the big one is making Aliyah, moving back to the land of Israel. But there is a, an, an orientation to the land that has persisted, even as Judaism has had to try to figure out how to live apart from the land. And obviously, you know, what's one of the five pillars of Islam to make a pilgrimage to Mecca, if you can, in your lifetime. So there is... Um, a, a, some sort of severing of the cord <laughs> in Christian spirituality. But on the other hand, you know, as I, uh, not about the land of Israel per se, but as I, you know, matured theologically and, you know, deepened my biblical understanding, I think what what sufficed for me, and probably out of this Lutheran spirituality that you you described there, was realizing in in especially the Gospel of John, Jesus is the remobilized temple or tabernacle. The famous thing about uh, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, the dwelt is more like tabernacled. So it's referring back to when God's presence was mobile and not fixed to Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And, uh, you know, and it's clear for John that, you know, Jesus moves on and his presence moves on. And, you know, for Lutherans, um, Eucharistically, Jesus moves on and is present to his people anywhere in the world. So again, I I never f had this feeling of not being connected to Jesus because I was not connected to the place where his his historical person lived and walked. But I will say that as I've also, you know, understood the Bible more deeply since that initial discovery in John, um, a further point has come to me, and that's why I'm, I'm still, you know, picking this apart because... Um, well, one of my Old Testament professors observed once, and I thought this was really profound, um, though I think it's a commonplace of Old Testament scholarship, is that the exile is kind of the haunting backdrop to all the Old Testament writings through the editorial hand that assembles them, that even the events narrated long, long, long before the exile, somehow the concern about the exile is present. And I think we could probably say that with the exception of Paul's letters and possibly James, if as we said in our earlier podcast this year, James is very early, then the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem is the haunting backdrop to all of the New Testament literature, which means there's a very interesting kind of fault line in the New Testament literature that makes some difference to how you read the two of them. But it seems like in light of um, the <laughs> the destruction first in 70 and then the really big one in 135 and um, you know, I, I guess our most of our, our our canonical stuff is is written down by that point. Anyway, that's that's a side note. I guess the point is that this is this is a big thing in the background, and I think it's pretty easy because the temple has been destroyed for so long, <laughs> and uh, it's been taken for granted um, that that's an okay thing or a, a good thing. Um, one of our books says that there was a lot of um, Christian triumphalism over the destruction of Jerusalem as it became more Gentile and less Jewish. Until then, the Arabs came and sacked Jerusalem, and then Christians were also sent away from the land that they had built up as a Christian place. 
Um, anyway, <laughs> there's there's something there that has to be dealt with, and so that's what we're we're trying to get at. And I should just say uh, briefly, I have actually visited. I, Dad, you haven't, but I went once for an ecumenical dialogue meeting, and we were first in Palestine. Bethlehem is in Palestine. We were there for a few days, and then we went over to Jerusalem, which is in Israeli territory. And um, it was the first time I really got <laughs> the the depth and severity of the political problem and the profundity of the resentment um, among the non-Israeli population. And, you know, I, I didn't have any st- stunning insights that are beyond anything else anyone has heard. But I, I have actually been in the land of Israel. I, I I have to say Jerusalem kind of feels like the world's oldest tourist trap. I know that's such an impious thing to say, but it didn't do much for me, honestly. I like driving through the desert. That was felt a little more authentic. But even that was very much, um, you know, a thing you experienced. So I'm not sure I walked with Jesus anymore there than I do anywhere else. Yeah, I know. I had a colleague um, um, who, who will go unnamed um, who um, often took students to the Holy Land, and his pitch line was to go where Jesus walked. I mean, that was kind of a spiritual selling point uh, of it. And um, I have to say um, that that, you know, I never really got that. I never really understood. Uh, first of all, after 2,000 years, the dirt you're walking on is no longer the dirt that Jesus walked upon. <laughs> you know, there's just a lot of geological change that has happened and continues to happen. The earth is not a fixed entity. It's a dynamic system. We'll talk about this in a couple podcasts from now further because we're going to kind of do a series here from the land of Israel uh, to planet Earth and as concerns about the health and safety of planet Earth into this this status of human beings as genuine earthlings. Uh, at least that's how I'm thinking of the next couple of podcasts launching out mm-hmm. from this point. Uh, but I, I think that um, we we decided to educate ourselves uh, on this since neither of us have really uh, studied, uh, had a theme in our theologies of for the land of Israel. And I do think you're right to point out that in the Bible, this is a big deal. And so we've got to have some kind of theological statement about the land of Israel. Uh, and uh, we, you, you found uh, two very impressive books that I'm very happy now to have read. Uh, you want to introduce them? Yeah, so I I realize going into this that all all reasoning is motivated reasoning, as we say these days, where the land of Israel is concerned, and um, so I wanted to do to to choose books that would. Um, not be extremist, but would also um, be representative of a range of views and also push both of us beyond anywhere we are presently, at least in, in thought and experiment. So the two books we dealt with, there's first one by Mark Kinzer, who is a leading Messianic Jewish rabbi. And um, I would say one of the the principal theological interpreters of the Messianic movement. Um, and just for those of you who aren't super aware of this, because I was not until recently either, this is really actually an outgrowth of charismatic renewal um, in the 1970s. And um, there's 
I don't, I don't know how many, maybe a million Messianic Jews in the world. I'm not quite sure about statistics because in my, my very limited experience visiting Messianic synagogues, there were always way more Gentiles than Jews present. So um, there there is both uh, a genuine, um, I don't know, uh, coming to embrace of Messiah by people of religious and ethnic Jewish backgrounds. Um, there's, and, um, you know, the Sure. <laughs> Great. You know, uh, I, I don't really know fully how to think about um, Jewish Christians, Christian Jews, Messianic Jews either. We'll save that for another time. Um, you know, uh, they are they are with the Lord God of Israel. And if they're also with Jesus, that's fine by me. Wonderful. Um, there also seem to be a lot of um, Gentiles who get into it because it's like the ultimate um, primitivism, <laughs> like it, it beats out every other attempt at, um, you know, and I, I, I by no means mean to say that all Gentiles who become friends or involved in Messianic Judaism mean that. I definitely don't mean that. But I have been in, uh, I remember a, f- a few years ago, I visited a place, uh, a Messianic synagogue, and the content of the sermon was a harangue against the celebration of Easter because Easter is not mandated in, in the Bible. And I was like, hmm, yeah, that's that's not going to get very far. <laughs> but okay. Uh, but Mark Kinzer is not like that. He is an extremely responsible theologian and biblical interpreter. And he wrote this book called Jerusalem Crucified, Jerusalem Risen, which is basically thinking through um, Jesus as embodiment of the land of Israel, the city of Jerusalem, and the temple itself, or the people surrounding him being the embodied um, icon of all that, and arguing, as we'll, we'll unfold in a bit here, for an ongoing theological significance to Jerusalem and the temple, not exhaustive, but still necessary for the fullness of salvation, both to Jews and to Gentiles. And I think the the burden of his question is, how, how can the Jesus event possibly be good news for the Jews? Um, because historically, it has not been in a lot of different ways, um, much to do with the followers of Jesus rather than Jesus himself. But is there anything substantial about Israel's whole history in that land and in that city and temple that pertains and um, after Jesus ascends into heaven? And then the other book we looked at is by Munter Isaac. He is a Palestinian Lutheran. I actually met him once very briefly. He came to the Institute in Strasbourg for a study stay, So I, uh, but I, I don't know him at all well. I actually found out about this book from hearing him interviewed on another podcast. And the book is called From Land to Lands, From Eden to the Renewed Earth. And his argument instead is to take a an overview of the entire biblical narrative, Old and New Testaments, you know, more or less historically sequentially, um, to ask um, how is land thought about from the Garden of Eden until the eschatological future? And he essentially lands at the uh, uh, opposite conclusion, which is that the significance of land, Jerusalem, and temple have been universalized. Now, he doesn't say that they have been... um, superseded or um, rendered utterly meaningless, but that their significance has been by by the, the Christ event extended to all the lands of the earth. And so to set apart the Holy Land as something, you know, ontologically or, you know, holy in a way that other lands are not holy is not in keeping with especially New Testament theology. So very different um, conclusions working from the same biblical material, though taking different approaches. 
Anyway, so having set that up, Dad, why don't why don't you start by engaging with both of them? Because I think with your your background studying Joshua as well as um, generally uh, more sensitive feelers for for political ramifications, I think you're going to be more useful walking us through these two books than I will be. Yeah, let's let's treat them one by one. Um, Kinzer first, and then Munther Isaac second. Um, I, I agree with you. Kinzer's book is intellectually virtuous. It's it's carefully and cogently argued. Um, uh, and if you're going to critique it, as I will in a little bit, uh, it has to be on the level of certain basic decisions that the author made about how to make his argument. Um, so, therefore, to his theological method, uh, rather than to his execution, given his stated uh, uh, purpose and so forth. Um, uh, here, here's Kinzer's key, key claim, and this I'm, I'm quoting, The future temple is not Jesus himself, but his disciples and the redeemed people of Israel. In the place where Abraham had offered up Isaac, and where David had been inspired to set the Ark of the Covenant, right? So that's an end quote. That's the key claim. And he says this claim refuses to separate Jesus, the ecclesia, the church, and the Jewish people from the land of Israel, the city of Jerusalem, and the Temple Mount. Okay, so end quote. That's that's Kinzer's key claim, um, and what is highly problematic about it, let me just point out immediately, is that it very much contradicts your reference earlier to the Gospel of John, in which Jesus himself uh, especially becomes clear in the dialogue with the uh, Samaritan woman, uh, that Jesus himself becomes the truth and the spirit in which the Father is worshipped uh, neither on Mount Gerizim in Samaria nor on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, but wherever the Spirit and the Word settle down uh, in, a, in a, a Christ-centered Christian community. So uh, how then does Kinzer dispense with this influential witness of the fourth gospel? And this is, I think, the heart of the problem with his argument. He limits himself to a close study of Luke-Acts, taking the, book, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts together, as he should, as a whole, uh, in which he uh, uh, derives a kind of salvation history scheme which emphasizes very strongly Christianity's continuity with Torah and Old Testament uh, Hebrew Bible uh, prom uh, history of salvation and promises, particularly of the land of Israel uh, to the Jewish people uh, and uh, the worship of God on the Temple Mount in the place where the Lord caused his name to dwell. And limiting himself this way to Luke and Acts, Kinzer really can substantiate, I think, what I would call naive chiliasm, uh, that um, 
Uh, like, for example, he, when Jesus ascends into heaven, according to Luke, on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, Kinzer argues that you will see me return in the same way that I left, Jesus says. And Kinzer says, that means he's coming back. He's going to land on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And so you better be ready for this. And how do you get ready for this? You get ready for this uh, by anticipating it uh, through the um, premillennial kingdom. Uh, though I, he's, this is very nuanced. I, I don't mean to draw such a um, uh, um, unnuanced picture, but that's basically the claim. And he couples that, Sarah, with a highly plausible line of development uh, because he notices all the anti-Gnostic, anti-Docetic features of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, just, for example, just think of the resurrection stories in which Jesus says, hey, give me a piece of that fish to eat, right? <laughs> I mean, that, he's just, yeah. it's re really emphasizing the bodily uh, nature of the resurrection against a, a current view of the Jesus his resurrection was a total spiritualization of Jesus, or, or in fact, a, a discarding of the flesh and, and, and becoming purely a spirit or something like that. And he draws a line from there, I think, very nice, a very good line, to Justin Martyr and Irenaeus in the second Christian century reacting against Marcionism and Docetism in Christology. Uh, so I th I th this is a very plausible historical critical reconstruction of the of the trajectory, the, the Wirkungsgeschichte, as Gadamer would say, of uh, Luke Acts on into the second Christian century in a battle against uh, Marcionism, which would reject the continuity between Israel, Torah, and Gospel and Jesus, and um, uh, would insist upon uh, the ongoing significance of the land of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. So that, that's basically, I would like to simply say, that's, that's the thrust of Kinzer's argument. you have anything yeah. to add to that? Yeah, I, I would just like to add what I appreciated about it before we go into critique. Um, the first one, I just thought the exegetical argument within Luke-Acts, just taking those two books together, was really strong. Um, it's something that I had very gradually over the years come to see myself is I don't actually understand why Luke was always called a Gentile author writing for Gentiles. <laughs> like it is such a Jewish book and it's so built around Jewish themes with kind of a depth and sophistication that... Um, it, I don't know, it seems almost like wishful thinking on the part of later Gentile Christians, like, oh, come on, didn't one of us write at least one major book of the Bible? And um, and I <laughs> liked that. Um, I, I found it especially helpful because I've, I've since I've, I've mentioned my interest in the book of Acts uh, since hanging out with Pentecostals, is um, the the constant motif of, of cycling back to Jerusalem. And that even though, you know, um, Paul especially is going all over the Mediterranean, there is a kind of... Um, of um, anchoring force of Jerusalem. And um, of course, and this is something, again, that Gentile Christians don't often notice, that the temple is not 
portrayed, or I should say, worship in the temple is not off limits for these early Jesus believers. I mean, Paul goes out of his way. Now, again, this is Luke-Acts depiction, but he goes out of his way, you know, at the one point when he breaks what appears to be, or he completes a Nazarite vow with trimming his hair, and he goes and prays in the temple. And, you know, he's doing this to show that um, you don't have to reject all distinctive markers of being a Jew in order to both embrace Jesus as Messiah and have fellowship with Gentiles who believe in Messiah. And I, I have come to see through other reading I've done as well how often wildly overstated the break between Jesus and everything Israelite that comes before has been in Gentile Christianity. Um, I think Kinzer maybe um, does some special pleading (laughs) in places, and I wasn't convinced by every single argument that he made. But um, in my both pastoral and intellectual experience, the degree to which there is acceptable contempt for Torah, for Israelite practice and consequently for later rabbinic practice is so deep and it is just as deep in liberal versions of Christianity as in conservative versions of Christianity that in that respect, you know, at this point, I'm 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 fairly open to anything that just gets people to stop saying that the Old Testament God is controlling and mean and vengeful and has all these arbitrary rules that have nothing to do with anything. And isn't it great to be a Christian? Because now you're free and you have love. Um, so in that <laughs> respect, I, uh, I I did like um, what Kinzer had to say. And, um, and I do, I don't, I'm not convinced by the answer entirely at all. <laughs> and I think that's what we'll get into now. But I, I really took to heart his his plea, both in, in the interpretation of what Jesus himself is saying and doing in his own time, and then in lived history ever since, and that I think is going to be finally the sticky wicket for us both here, that how has Jesus' advent been was it ever good news for the Jews? <laughs> Has it ever been good news for the Jews since then? And in what way that would even be recognizable? You know, I've I've learned many times to say as a Christian preacher, well, they were expecting this kind of Messiah, but they got that kind of a Messiah and they couldn't see. But um, the objection is not invalid, <laughs> you know, and the confusion is not unwarranted. And the actual effects were, you know, devastating um, upon the community. It caused schism within and then with all the other political happenings um, with the Romans and stuff. Uh, yeah, I, I think I, I think um, highly powerful and overwhelming Gentile Christians can afford to just slow down and ask the question, like, have Jesus' own people been blessed since by Jesus and since Jesus' advent? And if not, we should wrestle with that seriously. And I think um, Kinzer calls attention to that. And so far as that goes, I, I was ready to hear it. Yeah, of course, and that's why I think we would both recommend a study of this book uh, for the two reasons that you basically mentioned. This is a very interesting and I think largely persuasive reading of Luke Acts uh, as what I'm calling naive chiliasm. Uh, I think that's right. And secondly, um, uh, writing as a Jew who is a Christian and does not want to give up his uh, Jewish identity and practice. Um, As controversial as that status might be, both with Jews and with many Christians, you know, for whom it's one or the other, 
this this man and these people are taking a highly marginalized position and making a very vulnerable and precious witness. And as so far as Kinzer is writing as a Christian, he is appealing to Christian readers theologically to become resensitized to the first schism, which was the schism of Israel and the church, um, and to realize that this wound is deep and hurting, and it's been particularly hurtful uh, in his historical outcome for the Jewish people in Christian lands or Christianized lands and so forth. So I think I think you're right about both of those uh, those uh, recommendations of Kinzer's book. Uh, uh, let's move on, though, to what I think some of the deep problems are here. Uh, I think the first thing to say is that how do you relate a scheme of salvation history progress? That's what, if you follow Luke-Acts uh, basically without qualification, how do you integrate that with the fabulous eschatology uh, of early Christianity, namely the resurrection and the parousia. Um, we know that Luke-Acts pushes the parousia into the indefinite future. And we also know that Luke-Acts treats the resurrection as a palpable event within history. When I say palpable, what I mean is that it's a for Luke basically an attested witnesses witnessed fact uh, to the extent that Jesus shows up and says, "Give me some of that fish sandwich, I'm hungry," <laughs> you know. And so you have to ask here. This is kind of a historicizing of the resurrection uh, into a miracle alongside other miracles uh, within salvation history. And simultaneously, it's pushing the parousia, the return of Christ in glory, off into the indefinite future. And I think you see a parallel kind of theology, theological move in Kinzer's book when he says that, um, with the help, thank goodness, of Jewish theologian David Novak, uh, he qualifies his belief in, in the historical providence of God, which is, in, of course, Sarah, backing up the idea of the modern state of Israel as a fulfillment of God's prom, ancient promises to the Jewish people to restore them to the land promised to their ancestors. Um, uh, Kinzer, as a Christian, however, is aware that this is an incomplete fulfillment. So it's a very ambiguous fulfillment. Uh, it's not yet the eschaton. And then he refers to using David Novak's terminology uh, to finally a transcendent messianism uh, in which the real renewal of the whole cosmos will come about uh, at, at uh as an event which comes down from heaven, comes from above, and is not made or built by human hands. So I think it's always a problem with salvation history schemes based on Luke-Acts. How do you actually integrate the fabulous denouement of human history 
that seems to be indicated by the resurrection of Jesus and promised to the whole cosmos in the New Testament literature with a kind of a gradual unfolding, of a progressive unfolding in time of God's purposes. I think that's one big problem. Yeah. Shall I pause there for you yeah. to comment? Sure, sure. Well, you know, we we did two episodes on Acts before, and um, I'm I'm slightly less convinced that this is Luke Acts' agenda. This this uh, progressive salvation history unfolding in a kind of a smooth continuity of progress. I think that has a lot more to do with with uh, uses of Luke Acts, um, and and in this case also to an extent Kinzer's use of Luke Acts, um, especially because it's uh, as we discussed, it's hero and you know two-thirds of the book is Paul and it seems to be a known thing that Paul is going to end up very dead and discredited just like Jesus ended up dead and discredited and so the 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 narrative of the book of Acts especially is is yes going out into the world but going out to a a devastating ending and so I think the inconclusive ending of Acts is part of what's um uh, allows or invites a certain kind of of premillennial or postmillennial longing to like figure out uh, get the key to history. I think it it has lent itself to that. I'm not I'm not as persuaded that that's what it itself is doing. But it's also very clear that Luke Acts doesn't have anything like the um, apocalyptic fire <laughs> or either of either fear or hope that um, other aspects of New Testament literature does so far as that goes. And I guess it's just. Yeah, well, I'll just stop there for now. Yeah. Okay, good, Sarah. You know, and, and that that would underline to me that um, the triumphalist reading of Luke Acts, which would say from Jerusalem on to Rome as an anticipation of the triumph of Roman Empire's uh, Christianity. That's how Luke Acts was read. Now, you, you said that's a use to which Luke has been put. Well, but it sure I, wasn't I, happening I, in Luke's time. <laughs> that no, comes it wasn't so happening. After. Right. No, that's, of course, that's, that's true. But that's kind of a, the, a, an intrinsic, what I'm all I'm saying is that's an intrinsic problem in any kind of salvation history theology. Yes. Agreed. Um, agreed. Okay. The, uh, just now briefly, the other criticisms I want to make is that the argument is very strongly that Jerusalem and the land associated with Jerusalem remain central to the gospel of the New Testament, which fundamentally promises an end to Israel's exile and the reestablishment of the people of Israel uh, to their ancient land and to their capital, Jerusalem. Now, what's the problem with that? I think the problem is that as a Christian, Kinzer knows that the true restoration of Jerusalem would entail the rebuilding of the temple, and if one is following Torah um, in this regard, it would include the restoration of the sacrificial rites uh, uh, of atonement that occur within the temple liturgy. Now, as a Christian, Kinzer cannot buy that. I don't think many contemporary Jews would buy it either, but that's another story. The point is that for the argument to be coherent, it's not just the land or the city 
Jerusalem, it's not just the Temple Mount. It's the restitution of the physical temple on the Temple Mount and the worship that's instituted for it in the Torah. And Kinzer punts on this. He does, he does not go there. And that's because he doesn't say this, so I'm inferring this uh, from the way he writes, that for him, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the atonement and therefore the nullification of the sacrificial rites that occur in the temple. Um, and uh, he doesn't come right out and say this, but I don't see how the argument coheres without making that further move to the restoration of temple sacrifice. Uh, I suppose the only, finally... way, the only way that would work is if the, the restoration was, was an, an, an arrived eschatology and therefore no longer needed to do the rites because in order to access God, because God would already like be fully there in Jerusalem, like depicted in Revelation. But yes, within, within the horizons of in, in, incomplete eschatology, I, I, it doesn't add up for me either. Right. And I think that then finally, the last thing I want to say about Kinzer is that the problem Origen in the East and Augustine in the West had with naive chiliasm of the Lukacs, for example, or the second century church fathers who were champions in the battle against Gnosticism and Docetism, all, all glory to them for that battle. But the problem that Origen and Augustine had was the divine violence that is encoded in Old Testament scripture. Now, it's true, I agree with you, uh, Sarah, that a lot of cheap criticism of Hebrew Bible Old Testament has said, oh, it's an angry, wrathful God and all this kind of foolishness, which does not read the Old Testament very carefully. But you cannot avoid, and Origen and Augustine could not avoid the idea that the God of the scriptures kills always with a purpose clause in order to make alive, but God kills, and that's a scandal. The author of life kills the life that he has created uh, in acts of terrible and profound judgment. And how do you deal with that aspect of Torah? That's when Origen and Augustine, following Ambrose, argue for a spiritual reading of the Old Testament. That's the issue that they're dealing with. And I think that uh, just as naive chiliasm uh, is problematic for reasons already mentioned, any kind of naive reading of Torah uh, with its deeply encoded divine violence is also problematical, and that you have to have a different strategy to make sense uh, out of the scriptural narrative than Kinzer provides us with. Hmm. Yeah, and maybe just one last comment to that. Again, this is this is going <laughs> really to the edges and beyond of, of my own uh, substantial knowledge. But it, it seems to me there's also an interesting question here if in, say, Johannine Christology, Jesus is the outward traveling temple, especially through the Holy Supper. It se seems to me, and so far as I understand it, what became mainstream rabbinic Judaism was also taking the temple everywhere into the world. And even, even at Jesus' time, more Jews lived 
outside the land of Israel than within it. They, I mean, not just from the um, the exiled diaspora in, in Persia um, or Babylon six centuries earlier, but, you know, positive moves to Rome and to Alexandria and, and to other places as well. And so there was a way in which Judaism itself was already figuring out how to be fully present to God and God present to it without being in the land or in the temple. And so I think you would have to follow this line. You would have to ask, you know, some very difficult interfaith, but and also providential questions about the development itself of J- Judaism out of the Old Testament, just like Christianity is a development out of out of those same roots in a, in another direction. But they, it, you could, I, I think, it would be interesting to explore at least the possibility that both of them are reckoning with a no longer fully localized understanding of of God's reign, and that the presence is with the people and in the the prayers and 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 rites, but the land itself no longer. It's still more. It's still more important to rabbinic Judaism than it ever is to Christianity. But it's possible you can you you can be God can be present to you through Sabbath and and Torah keeping, even if you live very far away from the land of Israel. Absolutely, and I think that that um, that's one of the reasons why the when Zionist or Zionism arose in the 19th century, it was pretty sharply rejected by religious Jews whose self-understanding for all those 1,800, 1,900 years have have been that the Lord has sent us into exile. We are living uh, under this uh, judgment until the the Lord restores us to Zion and that we should not presumptuously uh, undertake this project on our own. Now, of course, uh, thinking has changed uh, in the light of history, especially the Holocaust and the establishment of the state of Israel. But I learned this from the great scholar Jacob Neusner, uh, the, that uh, the, 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 uh, how the early rabbinic movement was a, was a penitential theology that, of course, they Jews and Christians disagreed on why God had judged and uh, the temple worship and nullified it, destroyed it through the Roman conquest. Uh, and they repented, saw repentance needed for different reasons. But early rabbinic theology was a penitential theology in this regard. And the danger of losing a penitential perspective of course, uh, is that one becomes, um, um, well, um, convinced of one's own righteousness uh, at the expense of the lives of those who stand in your way. Right. A warning that applies even more to Christians than to Jews. (laughs) Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. So let's move on to Munther Isaac's book. Well, let's notice right away that... um, he quite contradicts the key claim of of Mark Kinzer, namely that um, um, the Jesus is the new temple. Jesus, in his life, teachings, and ministry, embodied all the realities that pertain to the land in the Old Testament. As a result, in the new era of history, the meaning and significance of the land as articulated by New Testament authors, has been radically transformed by the coming of Jesus. Now that's, end quote, now that's not only 
that the land has been universalized. The land has been universalized because Jesus is the fulfillment in his uh, person and work of the worship commanded in the Torah for the temple. And as such, in Christ, the land is universalized in the sense that it provides an agenda for faithful Christian practice throughout the world today, right? Uh, you're, you're moving from the particular Israel to the universal, the earth, and that's been achieved through Christ. The theology of the land in the Old Testament, he argues, becomes the theology of every land. In other words, we read the Old Testament salvation history narrative as a template that is prophetically interpreting all people's experiences uh, in every corner of the globe. I just would would um, modify it slightly there. I think the argument he's going for is more is not so much local to universal, but that every locality participates in this. Um, Christ thing, Christ event, that thereby it becomes universal. But I think there's a way in which, especially post-Enlightenment people, universal means like generic or homogenous. And I think he's trying to go for something more like um, not just one locality, but multiple localities spreading outward. Right. Yeah, you're right. That's how he understands universalization. That's because it's universalization in Christ not the universalization of the categorical imperative or the tribunal of reason. <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly, yeah. And it really, for him, it really does come with Christ and all the specificity that surrounds Christ, like, you know, the scripture and the church and um, the Holy Supper and all those things. Right, and, you know, what impressed me about this book, Sarah, other than the fact that Methodologically, it is not confined to Luke Acts, but it, it, it really is a very innovative argument that begins with the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2 and 3 and talks about the loss of the land and the exile from the land and the restoration of the land, the meek shall inherit the earth, which and how these are tropes for the originally for. Israel's exile on account of disobedience and the promise of return from exile and how that then gets embodied in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and extended to the ends of the earth. Uh, so he picks up these three themes. He, he embodies the presence of God on earth, Jesus does. Jesus kept the covenant and inherited the land and also began to expand the inheritance to other lands. He inaugurated the reign of God on earth. Uh, he also redefined what it means to be Israel, because Israel now includes people from all nations. So it's this idea from Romans 9 to 11 that the lands and the nations of the world are being grafted into Israel and as a result, Israel itself is getting expanded.
Right. And I think this is, he's also really basing it out of the blessing of Abraham to be a blessing to the nations and all the the peoples of the earth will be blessed in you. And so, I mean, and this is a pretty ancient Christian argument that that blessing to Abraham, who, you know, is the father of the people of Israel is happening through Jesus and then through the Gentile engraftment that follows. Right. And as a result, then he can say he is not spiritualizing in the vague sense of uh, that that word is often used, the promises uh, to the ancient uh, nomads that they would inherit a land. He's saying he, the land is, he uses this expression. It's not, the promise of land is not being spiritualized, it's being Christified. What impressed me after composing my Joshua commentary and really arriving at these conclusions by my inductive work of studying the book of Joshua is that um, uh, uh, Munther Isaac articulates a series of sharp questions to contemporary Christian Zionists, uh, which I'd like to read because I think it's very important. To insist that the Old Covenant continues today with its terms unchanged, namely, you know, to inherit the land of Israel by contemporary Jews, is to deny in essence that Jesus continued Israel's story and that he is the ideal and faithful Israel, the seed of Abraham and the inheritor of the land. It also fails to acknowledge that the universalization of the inheritance was something foreseen and anticipated in the Old Testament, and it denies the fact that this inheritance is only possible in the present in Christ for those who are in union with him. Finally, it fails to see that the land as a mandate, insisting instead on treating the gift of the land as a possession. But we must remember the question, why a land, moreover? What was its intended purpose? And then we must wonder, did the promise of the land achieve this intended purpose and destiny? The implied answer to all of these questions is no. Uh, We don't even, for Christians, it is Jesus who inaugurated a new era in history in which the land became a source of blessing to the entire world. As such, and here's the punchline, any future restoration for ethnic Israel to the promised land would not be in harmony with the biblical narrative. Close quote. And he means that primarily theologically. It's not a political statement. That's right. and that, But it is also a political statement, Sarah, because he he rejects the two-state solution as a as a political solution uh, to the contemporary Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It is a theological judgment, but for Munther Isaac, it has political implications along those lines. Right, right. I just he says, but I, but the, I think that's I just wanted to say the the 
no ethnic Israel restoration to the land. He's not saying, therefore, drive them out now. They have no, the state has no right to exist. And he rejects the two-state solution because he wants shared land among, between Jews and Christians and Muslims also. So I just, I, I think because this is so sensitive to distinguish between a theological judgment about what Christian witness concludes from the political ramifications, which are, you know, also open, even more open to dispute than the theological conclusions are. Right. You know, and that kind of leads us as we're drawing to a close now with the, what do we say about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict on the basis of this? Um, maybe we should mention a few criticisms of Munther Isaac before we turn to that. Yeah. So I, I guess there are two things for me is that um, you know, I, I, I'm a missionary and I, you know, occasionally from the pulpit, you know, remind my people who live very far away from the events of the Bible. And for Japanese, that's that's a concerning matter. Um, we don't need to get into all that. But, you know, what do we have to do with that story from so far away? And, you know, I think that's a fair question for a localized, universalized, Christified religion to, to try to address that. And so I, I talk uh, joyfully about the coming of the gospel to Japan. But then there's something about <laughs> reading Munter's uh, Isaac's account, which I, I, I know is not meant in a, a form of secular conquest, but this, you you know, I just got this mental image of, you know, like the Jesus army marching out and bit by bit conquering the whole earth. And there's something that just kind of gave me the willies about it, uh, even though, you know, I'm I'm clearly a Christian missionary who would like to to bear the good news to everywhere. And maybe uh, this is this is importing something that he doesn't intends, but I suppose also because I am so well aware of the consequences of um, demanding um, uh, religious unity and full consent that um, how how in a, a, a world still under apocalyptic dispute, we can talk about a Christified land um, that is not um, corrupted Christendom or a form of persecution of dissenters um, or just backing off entirely and letting the devil take the earth because we don't want to be involved in conquest. So that kind of whole... Um, nexus of questions occurred to me. And then my other nexus is basically he he disavows supersessionism as saying that God abandoned the Jews, but he does use the term nullification of the old covenant under its old terms, which is matches with something that you read in the, in the quote there. And so he tries to talk about what is and isn't significant about the land of Israel and Jerusalem and the temple and the covenant now. And um, I give him a lot of credit as a Palestinian who probably has um, deeply rooted reasons to resent Jews and Israelis. He he clearly does not want to be a supersessionist. Um, I don't know if he succeeds. And what alarms me is... Um, I don't know what other alternative there is. Um, as a final side note on that, as I've continued to wrestle with Luther's anti-Judaism, um, the horrible conclusion is that Luther got almost nothing that he did not find in the Bible, uh, both Testaments. <laughs> and there is lots of fodder for supersessionism in the New Testament. Even if you hold Romans 9 through 11 against it, there, the, the supersessionistic arguments come out of there. Now, there, there has to be a way of 
dealing with those texts that is not supersessionistic, but clearly there has to be some kind of before and after. And I am so troubled by so many before and afters in history, I don't really know what to do. And that's why this this topic is so alarming to me, because it, it forces into the foreground all sorts of things that I've kind of let um, lurk in the background without facing head on. Um, all right, I'm done. <laughs> well, you, you, thank you, Sarah. I mean, I have this. I share the same concerns. Let me try to synthesize what you said a little bit. But first of all, to affirm that he intends not to be a supersessionist. He says his approach is that of incorporation into and continuity with biblical Israel, rather than superseding or replacing Israel. That's explicit. That's his intention, right? Um, so I think I think we have to give him credit for that. Here's the problem that I see, and it's ironically the same problem that afflicts Kinzer's approach. Uh, even though Munther Isaac has adopted a much larger scope, the entire scripture going back to the Garden of Eden, it's still basically a salvation history scheme in which the alternate reading of Luke-Acts, from Jerusalem to Rome to the ends of the earth, <laughs> is now the narrative, right? As opposed to the Messiah's return to the Temple Mount in Kinzer, right? So he shares a kind of salvation history view of the progress of God's kingdom on earth, which, I, as you suspect, easily lends itself to Christian triumphalism. And that's why the uh, the passage I read earlier that he renounces military or political means comes as a kind of a, a deus ex, ex machina, uh, you know, uh, a solution. He, the, the book really does not, to my mind, uh, integrate uh, methodologically a theology of the cross. And he invokes the cross at the last minute to slam on the brakes and say, when I say Christification of land, I don't mean Constantinianism. Well, okay, you don't mean that, but how does this work? How do you have a salvation history theology of the historical progress of the kingdom of God working itself out in history and avoid taking the step of Christifying the state? and using the state's coercive mechanisms to realize your um, uh, biblical theology. Yeah, but it could easily also be the culture or uh, Circle the Wagons Church. I mean, there's all sorts of ways to do that. Yeah. Right, right, right. Uh, and I, you know, just very simply, and I don't want to get into my whole apocalyptic versus salvation history shtick here, but I'll just say this much. Methodologically, neither Kinzer nor uh, Isaac think of the reign of God as an event which breaks in upon a world held in captivity. They tend to think of the kingdom of God as an ideal which can be realized with the help of a proper biblical theology. Uh, and so informed Christians can work it out. Isn't that just another iteration of dispensationalism? 
It occurs to me you could define dispensationalism as salvation history pushed as far as it can in order to force the apocalyptic hand of God. So it's the worst of both (laughs) and none of the virtues of either. Yeah, and, you know, in Kinzer, just like the rabbis thought that if all Israel would perfectly keep the Torah for four successive, successive Sabbaths, that would trigger Messiah's coming. And uh, Kinzer thinks that the final parousia of the Lord will be triggered uh, when Israel uh, uh, actually does greet Jesus as its king. Uh, That Palm Sunday is a kind of proleptic anticipation of Israel's reception of Jesus as its Messiah. And that the, uh, so he is kind of in this respect, I guess you would say, a a post-millennialist, that we can build up the progress of the kingdom of God on earth. Uh, And he sees that in the uh, conversion of Israel uh, to Jesus as Messiah that would welcome him in Jerusalem and that would trigger the coming of of Christ in glory. Uh, And I just think these kinds of approaches, uh, uh, um, even though, as you're right, you can read them out of the Bible very easily, uh, just miss the fundamental paradox of proclaiming Uh, Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Greeks. Mm. Yeah, there is a, um, I'm always deeply suspicious of beliefs that we could do it right. And here's what we need to do to do it right. (laughs) To me, there's uh, very few steps between here's what we need to do to do humanity or earth or state or church right and um, gulags. I mean, because anyone who doesn't get on board with the program is standing in the way and you know we can't have that and i of course do not mean that either kinzer or isaac actually want that but it, it is a sort of a of dis- disposition of mind and i'm i'm sure in both cases it's a response to seeing real anguish and violence and wrongdoing and wanting to stop it i i don't disagree with the the urgency of needing to do something about it and so i guess this brings me to to the final point that this exploration we've done both in the reading and now in our conversation about it. I still have no idea what to think theologically about the land today. What this has given me (laughs) actually is a realization that as much as I detest dispensationalism, it is a distinctively Christian heresy because it is a confession that God is the God of history and history actually matters and history is the arena where God acts. And if God actually acts in history, then you have no choice but to render some judgments about it, that this is God's doing, but this was contrary to God's will and they intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. And I know so well all the problems and corruptions and self-exalting and self-justifying things that come out of everything from mild to extreme dispensationalism. But what I've realized is, of course I do it too, because if you think God is the God of history, you have to do it too. The alternative is a Gnosticism where God is totally absent from earth and history, and I can't go there. So I am hoisted on my own petard. Thanks. (laughs) Well, Sarah... I think that's a perfect way to end this podcast, to leave you dangling in the wind. Okay. Well, if you never hear from us again, folks, that's why. <laughs> no, actually, we're going to 
we're going to take, um, I, I think, you know, um, we can't solve all your problems there in that last uh, anguished paragraph that you came out with. Uh, but we can say this much, that uh, Munther Isaac is at least right about this, that the traveling gospel does uh, come to new lands and it does take root in new lands. And there, in a very carefully to be, uh, w way to be defined, uh, we can talk about the Christification of the land, uh, carefully defined by what, what we mean by that. And that would be the psalm verse that Jesus turns into a beatitude, the meek shall inherit the earth. That's a promise. It's not something that's obviously true or visibly realized. Uh, but living in the promise that the meek shall inherit the earth, we can, I think, we earthlings can be settled on planet earth with the full knowledge that this is a temporal, not eternal gift and blessing, and that it is a conditional gift and blessing, not an unconditional one. And within those limitations, we can bloom where we are planted. How's that for a teaser for the next couple of episodes? <laughs> Sounds pretty good. So that means next time on the show, from the land to the earth. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.